welcome back to Integrated the Community Paramedicine Podcast. And today I have Dr. Ibarra, who is an emergency medicine and family practice physician and EMS medical director, longtime EMS medical director in Texas, who has been uh, really working in the MIH space for a few years, getting involved at really the policy level as well as his local community. And he was uh, gracious enough to hop on the recording today. So thanks for getting on, Doc. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So you and I got a few minutes to chat here and you kind of gave me some, you know, of your personal history involved in this. And it's, it's impressive. It's great to hear docs that are involved in their, their EMS agencies and really seeing where some of these opportunities are. But, um, you know, for the audience, why don't you kind of give us a little bit of how you got here, how you got involved in MIH and, you know, hopefully how that led into uh, some of the policy work. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I'm a, a physician and have been a physician for some almost 40 years now. Uh, most of my colleagues have retired, um, but I, I keep trudging away and I'm really still front lines. I do a lot of emergency medicine shifts, mainly night shifts, uh, but I also spend my time working with paramedics in the small city that I work in, in uh, South Padre Island, Texas, which is at the very tip of Texas. I'm the medical director for two city agencies there, South Padre Island and Los Fresnos very early on in my career and I did a family practice residency, but early on I started moonlighting in the ER and my personality sort of kind of gravitated toward emergency medicine. Not that I, I didn't like family practice, but, and I've done actually both for some 37 years now, kind of combining, you know, both careers. And in between I've, I've had an incredible life. I'm, I'm married. I have a lot of kids. <laughs> in fact, I'm 64 and I have a 33 day old. So <laughs> and a four-year-old, five-year-old, and two girls in college. So, you know, two chapters there. But I've always been um, interested in helping uh, not just, you know, patient in front of me, but also the community. And I found that uh, being an uh, EMS medical director, I could extend myself into the community and support the individuals, the paramedics and EMTs that are really, in my estimate, you know, the, the true heroes in our community because they go out there and they, they put their lives on the line and they, they rush in where other people try to run away from. And we drive vehicles sort of almost fast and try to stay within the speed limit or whatever. But, you know, we, we go through a lot of intersections and there's, you know, a lot of collisions and things like that. And we get hurt, especially the ones, the paramedics and helicopters and that type of thing. So I've always wanted to sort of support those individuals with, with the gifts that I have, which is my education. I've had, you know, a very great foundation in the Houston area, went to Baylor College of Medicine, and I did my residency through the UT Houston programs. But anyway, um, over the years, I've sort of connected the dots and tried my best, not only in my personal life to improve myself and be the very best I can be physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, but I've tried to extend that to the individuals that I sort of serve as medical director. And so I try to form relationships with all the paramedics and try to help them engage in personal development and also kind of some higher purpose, which is to, to help individuals in their time of need. And with 911 paramedics, of course, you know, we're putting out fires and, um, you know, dealing with mainly injuries and, and illnesses that require, you know, 911 emergency type of treatment. But over the years, I've seen that I've neglected sort of what my family practice training taught me, which is, you know, to, to deal with root causes. And in healthcare, I think today we treat, we, we're just putting out fires, you know, and, and we really should be focusing on root causes, illness and injury. You know, I'm talking about 
diet and exercise as medicine. And really, I have found that family physicians, on the most part, including myself, you know, I fess up. I don't spend as much time after putting out the fire talking to patients about, you know, doing lifestyle modification and and uh, really focusing on choosing the apple instead of the donut, and you know, thinking about doing what we all should be doing, which is exercising and increasing our heart rate, you know, for 30 minutes a day, most days of the week. I mean, this is, this has been shown to kind of help with some of those metrics in population health, you know, obesity and longevity and control of chronic diseases and things of that sort. And what I have, what I have seen is that community paramedicine kind of put a different hat on as a paramedic and be the extension of an EMS agency or what I'm really advocating for is for primary care, community health centers, and rural health clinics also uh, have community paramedicine programs so that paramedics can can do what you know us, us primary care physicians are not doing as well as we should be doing, which is deal with some of the the metric and outcomes, specifically obesity. I mean, when you when you think of our nation as a whole, I mean, we're 65 percent, 70 percent obese, and that leads to you know diabetes and hypertension and other chronic diseases, and and then we we're just putting out fires, and we sure. really need to focus on on health of individuals and. And um, of course, you know, community paramedicine programs and MIH programs have had proof of concept by EMS agencies. And I salute EMS agencies for, for doing what they've done in many states, preventing uh, 911 calls, frequent flyers, readmissions, and all those, you know, things that are also very, very important. And that's part of the scope of, of training for community paramedicine and MIH programs. But I think a deeper dive would show that there's utility in having paramedics work with primary care physicians to extend into the community and really focus on outcomes in population health metric terms. And I think, you know, right now we're at 19.7% GNP for healthcare. That, that means that 20% of, of every dollar, 20 cents is going to healthcare expenditures. And that's- Which is crazy. That, it's crazy. The, the trajectory is is upward. And you know, there's, there's some healthcare economists, there's a book called Flatlining, how healthcare will destroy the US economy. And it, it goes into sort of an analogy with the housing market in 2008 and the automobile market where the US economy had to bail them out. And sure. if healthcare goes that same trajectory, I mean, we're <laughs> we're talking about 10 times worse than that. And, you know, extreme if we're not already there now, I mean, it, it's been pointed out repeatedly over the past probably five years that we spend more, a greater percentage of GDP per capita on healthcare than any other uh, OECD nation. And we have the worst outcomes in virtually every category. Absolutely. You're, you're right on the mark on that. In fact, uh, I was at a fundraiser with a governor candidate and he's the incumbent right now. And he's talking about all the great things he's done for our state. And I agreed with all those things. I mean, he, they've done so much in our state. I mean, we have $27 billion surplus <laughs> in our state of Texas. And after that, he, he allowed us to ask questions. So I raised my hand and I said, you know, governor, I agree with everything you've said, but they, where we've done so well, our population health metrics are so poor. We have a black eye for obesity and chronic diseases. And, and, and you know, please, let's use some of that $27 billion toward really focusing on what's important. And the ROI on that is astronomical. I mean, I, I think everywhere yeah. that has yeah. chosen to make those investments has been able to demonstrate that, you know, similar to the emergency management, you know, ratio, like every dollar you spend on mitigation saves you 
many, many dollars down the road on response and recovery. But for some reason, exactly. we'd rather buy a new apparatus and buy new equipment for response rather than invest a much smaller amount of more impactful dollars up front on prevention and on mitigation. You're right. You're, you're, really, you're really right on the mark on that. In my career, I've always told my kids, you know, one person can change the world. I mean, you have to be that person. You have to be the change. For example, in emergency medicine in Texas, you know, we used to have democratic groups. Uh, we used to collect ourselves. Eight, eight of us or so would go to a hospital CEO and we would contract with them to run their ER. And so it was our group practice. And then over the years, corporate medical groups started coming into our state and kind of taking our contracts away one by one. And so we're in Texas, we're an anti-corporate practice of medicine state. And yet these corporations were coming into our state and, and then we'd have to work for a corporation, which many of us felt that was wrong. So many of my ER doctor colleagues, you know, were very disgruntled about that. And and I, I started thinking, because I'm avid learner, not just in medicine, but in art history and philosophy. And, and I started thinking, you know, Michelangelo said one of his famous quotes is criticized by creating, criticized by creating. So I thought, along with some pioneer ER doctors, hey, let's just put our ER in the community. Let's just be independent. And, and actually, that's what we did. And initially, we did okay, and insurance companies would reimburse us. But then they started saying, you're not at a hospital. Why should we reimburse you? So long story short, I wrote a bill for independent freestanding ERs. It got modified some by early innovators. But eventually, my wife, who's a dentist, became a state representative, and all of my ER doctor friends contributed to her campaign and she was elected and we, and she actually helped pass the bill in 2009 that allows us in Texas to have independent freestanding emergency centers. I thought from that uh, leap ahead 10 years, now my focus has been we're on this burning platform for our US economy if, if we keep spending you know, more and more on healthcare. So I started thinking, well, what can I do to change the world, and, you know, my world? And I started looking at different models and you know, as I looked more and more at community paramedicine and um, mobile integrated health, I thought this is the, I got to put some things together and connect primary care physicians and community paramedics and do what EMS agencies have done very well with community paramedicine programs. So I, I've written a bill that's an enabling legislation for community paramedicine. It not only enables EMS agencies to get reimbursed for what we do, which brings value to the healthcare economy, preventing readmissions and that type of thing. But if you put primary care physicians working with paramedics to extend into the community, I believe that we can really impact population health because I've seen the community paramedic and especially the, uh, the person who's moderating this, this talk. I mean, paramedics are incredible and they have so much capacity to facilitate physicians to bring value to patient care not just putting out the fires, but preventing the root causes of disease and illness and injury, which is basic, basic things like, hey, uh, let's sit here at your breakfast table and let's talk about your diet. Let me look in your refrigerator and see what you've been eating. And let's talk about how important it is to exercise. And, and then let's monitor you. You know, I'll, I'll come back in a week and see how you're doing. And if you have any questions, and, and this is what I think family physicians and primary care physicians should have been do, doing all along. And yet we've neglected that. And so we've gotten into the state that we're at now. But yeah. I, I really believe that, you know, working together, physicians and paramedics and models like MIH and community paramedicine, I think we can reverse the, the disease process of, of, our, of our healthcare system. 
and make it a health system instead of health care. And, and instead of just putting out fires, we're actually preventing the fires. And I mean, with many chronic diseases, for instance, diabetes and atherosclerosis, I mean, some of those are reversible. You start exercising, you bring your cholesterol level down, you can actually reverse a lot of chronic diseases. And the I think- it's certainly uh, modifiable. Yeah, yeah. And I think we can do the same thing with, with healthcare. So I'm, I'm going to get really personal here and let you know, I believe that everybody should have a vision mission statement for themselves. Okay. So I'm going to give you my two uh, vision mission purposes. Okay. <laughs> and the first one is to optimize the lives of the people I love, my children, my wife, and, and then the extension of love goes outward. I want to love patients that walk in the door. I want to love my paramedics and I want to, I want to optimize everybody's lives. My second purpose and this is the BHAG, the Big Harry Audacious Goal or the Moonshot, whatever you want to call it. I want to be part of that fire starter to heal healthcare. And I want to look at not just my community as patient, but, you know, the whole, the whole population as my patient and say, you know, we have a system problem. Let's, let's figure out what can we do to, to heal our healthcare system and make it a health system, you know, That's huge. Another, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I know it's a BHAG. The other personal thing is, you know, I'm, I'm very resilient. I've run 58 full marathons. Uh, I just climbed Kilimanjaro with my two daughters, 17 and 20. You know, I, I was a cancer warrior at MD Anderson a couple of years ago. Uh, I've recovered. I'm in remission. And, you know, one of the things I like about MD Anderson is they have a line through cancer, <laughs> you know, in their advertisements. And I think we can put a line through illnesses and injuries, you know, by working on prevention and, and using the new mid-levels, I think, you know, the paramedics as new mid-levels professionals. And, and part of my bill, and I've worked with um, the Austin, Travis County medical director on, on my bill, and we both believe that um, sure. we, we should elevate paramedics to give them a new ceiling. It's, and they just and they just started the uh, paramedic practitioner role within the department as a formal civil service role within their agency. There you go. And that's what my bill, um, transformation of uh, House Bill 3161, which we put through last uh, legislative session, which was during the peak of COVID and some energy crisis in Texas. So it got through the House, but it didn't get through the Senate. But it's an enabling bill. But in the new version that Mark Escott and I have worked together on, we've included that paramedic professional. And I really believe that paramedics are a very optimal mid-level provider, professional, especially especially if stay connected to physicians and we let the physicians bring their cognitive capacity to make a diagnosis. And paramedics, MIH personnel are the facilitators of that connection between the physician and the patient. You know, Very so that similar we're to like the collaborative partnership agreements like our clinical pharmacists have. Absolutely. I mean, we should all, I mean, we should be aiming toward population health metrics. In other words, what is the effect of, of our intervention? I'll, I'll give you an example. In, on South Padre Island, uh, three years ago, almost three years ago in February 2020, when we had no physicians really on the island other than myself as the EMS medical director and our, our trip to the first, to the, to the closest hospital, I put together a clinic and I called it a population clinic, a population health clinic. And basically I did a community health needs assessment and I collaborated with the city, with the mayor and city council and the EDC. And they actually funded through a county firm called BKD, a community health needs assessment for the city of South Padre Island. 
And what's unique about South Padre Island is we only have essentially 3,000 permanent population. We have 4 million to 8 million visitors a year, and that makes it very unique. But to do the community health needs assessment, it was easy to identify how many diabetics we had, how many hypertensives. And then I set up, put together in my primary care practice, a community paramedic program. And I selected some paramedics and I hand trained them. I sent them out to patients' homes. And especially when the pandemic hit and nobody was coming in, we'd actually go to patients' homes and give them nebulizer treatments and check on their diabetes and other things. So we were actually sending myself as a physician out into the community. And then as soon as vaccines were available, we took it upon ourselves to vaccinate anybody and everybody, especially, you know, starting with first responders and then the at-risk patients, you know, 65 and older, chronic diseases. Sure. And, and then as soon as we got monoclonals, we were infusing as many patients as we could to keep them out of the 911 system and, and out of the ER that was crowded and out of the ICU, which were unavailable. So sure. we actually, in, in that short period, we infused 1,600 patients. And, and, and um, I had formed a, um, a public benefit corporation, which is, now we can do that in Texas. We passed legislation right. in 2017 to allow LLCs to become public benefit corporations. So I had become one. So part of my reporting for the effect on the community was how many patients did we keep out of the 911 system and out of the... ER. And basically when I say ER, it was our ambulances waited two, three hours to offload, you know, and we only had two ambulances on in South Padre Island and two in Los Fresnos. And when both of them were in parking lots, I mean, it was, it was a disaster for the city as far as risk for right. the other things that were going on, like MIs and strokes. So anyway, I think what I did on a small scale on South Padre Island, we can do on a large scale, not just in Texas, but throughout the United States, if we just focus community by community and work collaboratively, physicians, paramedics, uh, nurses, pharmacists, all of us working collaboratively to improve population health metrics. And, and that's really yeah. the question. I mean, how many of these MIH programs got their start during COVID because people were looking for a solution, any solution, and were willing to look outside of the the rather limited toolboxes that I feel like a lot of health systems had consigned themselves to. So COVID gave that opportunity. We had lots of uh, new money, new energy into developing community paramedics and in some places taking it that step further to that broader collaborative, you know, multidisciplinary mobile integrated health look. And now there are a lot of folks that are asking themselves, how do we scale this? How do we apply those lessons learned or deliver a similar impact uh, to our communities outside of the context of um, COVID, something so, so finite, so discreet and you know, really, I think almost easy to bracket now that we look at things from a, from more, again, that systems perspective. And, you know, to kind of touch on some of the things we were talking about, um, uh, David Schoenwetter, he's an emergency physician out at uh, Geisinger Health System in Central PA, used to be their MIH medical director, phenomenal guy, I got to have some great conversations with a few years ago, pointed out, you know, we're talking about population health, we're talking about, you know, the, the social determinants of health, and some of those have turned into buzzwords more than than meaningful words, but, you know, you just said, you know, paramedics see those like psychosocial and environmental factors, those true population health factors, those social determinants of health at a practical level every single day, whether or not they have the language to articulate it and the means with which to communicate it to others. 
exactly. And, and, you know, the way we do this, I think, is, is the way we take on any big task. I mean, when I was training to climb Kilimanjaro a couple of months ago, you know, I, the, uh, the guys said, kept saying, pole, 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 pole. And that means little steps. And, and eventually you got to the summit, you know. <laughs> of course, you have to deal with hypoxia and, you know, fatigue and all those other kind of things, uh, you know, that were challenging. Uh, and we have a lot of challenges, you know, in, in healing healthcare, but we got to take it in my estimate, we got to make, make it simple. Okay. And we do it one community at a time and we find leadership, physician leadership and paramedic leadership. And we, we figure out the zip code and we, we say, okay, what, what are we dealing with in our community? And then you individualize it and you say, okay, let's set up, let's get a baseline, do community health needs assessment. And, you know, on South Padre Island, we spent $18,000 to do our community health needs assessment with BKD and accounting firm. But, you know, the American Academy of Family Physicians just rolled out a free internet access to something called health, health landscapes, healthlandscapes.org. And with that, you can just take any zip code. And you can, you know, put the zip code in and boom, you get all the, you get all sorts of metrics that you can then use as your guide to say, okay, you know, we have a 80% obesity rate in our community. Let's try to teach, you know, people, individuals, how to choose the apple instead of the donut. We provide places where they can get healthy food. And, and we talk about exercise as medicine. We create hiking trails and other venues where people can actually get out and be a healthy community. But you do it one one step at a time, pole pole, or how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, you know, that type of thing. And all of us have, have taken on big tasks. I mean, we, we've studied for the paramedic boards or, you know, for whatever big test that we have to take. And you don't cram at the end of the day before the test, you, you take it a little bit at a time. And so that, I think that's what we have to do with this big, big problem that we have for U.S. healthcare. And, sure. you know, you take it. Yeah, one I've been involved just, in, yeah. I've been involved in the, the community health needs assessment for, for our health system for a number of years, a couple of cycles now. And, you know, it's an IRS requirement for any nonprofit hospital. So um, exactly. I think it's, um, it's certainly a risk that health systems uh, undertake that process simply as a compliance task. You know, it's something that they have to do. They check the boxes as quickly as possible. Yeah. I feel pretty privileged that where I work, we took the opportunity to say, let's really look at this. And we're, again, we're a major health system with, you know, over 15 hospitals plus community hospitals and all the other stuff. So it was a bigger picture question. And, and how do we address it as a system rather than as individual facilities? But one of the, the things that I've taken away from this is that the IRS structured community health needs assessments. We all know there are lots of different ones. Health departments run them. Private companies run them. Lots of people do and conduct these type of uh, assessments, just like the one that, that you folks did there. Um, but the IRS required ones tends to put hospitals in a position of essentially saying our, our health needs are the list of most common diagnoses. And then Sometimes they weight them against the, um, the payer mix. They weight them against the reimbursement rates and, and those sort of things. But those aren't really the needs in the community. Diabetes is not a health need. All those, those social factors that lead to a prevalence of diabetes in your community really lead us to the what's the need. You know, the need isn't diabetes. We don't need any more diabetes. We need more healthy food. We need more access to physical activity. We need more communities where people feel like it's safe to be outdoors and active. You know, we need, that's what we need. But it's so hard to get health systems to hear that and to think that way because they think within the four walls of the facility, 
and that it doesn't matter until they show up as a patient with a diagnosis of diabetes, possibly in DKA or whatever reason that they showed up this time. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's easy enough to say, well, with the hospital or healthcare system, you know, whatever system we're in, you know, take care of the problem. But at the end of the day, you got to just raise your hand and say, I'm going to be the change. I'm going to be the fire starter. I'm going to get into my community and I'm going to, you know, leverage whatever resources I have to focus on these things that are impacting the people in my community. And, you know, if you just break it down into small pieces, you know, and if there's leadership and people that are courageous enough to just step out there and do what you want your kids to do, you, you want your kids to be heroes and you want them to embrace, embrace being the change. I mean, I, I love the quote by, I, I think it was Gandhi that said, you know, be the change. You know, you can't just point your finger outward. You got to point it inward and you got to say, okay, it's up to me and I'm going to do what I can do, whether everybody else is not doing it or not. And I'm going to figure out the levers, the fulcrum, and I'm going to be that, you know, I'm going to be that person that actually it gets out there and, you know, puts it on the line. And then, you know, let me find a group of other people that are like-minded and really want to get beyond survival and just egocentricity and then really be servants, servant leaders, you know, and serve others and create something better for your kids that, than we have now. This goes for environmental changes and fossil fuels and other things too. But, you know, for me, health is, is the main point for me. And as I pointed out earlier, you know, my second vision, mission, purpose is to heal healthcare. And I mean... It's a BHAG, Big Harry Audacious Gold in Jim Collins' nomenclature or a moonshot in, a, in another paradigm. But you got to just do it. And it takes personal development. It, it takes being physically energized, emotionally connected, mentally focused, and spiritually aligned. I mean, you got to have muscles in all those domains of yourself. And then you, you, you serve by doing these kind of things. And that's, you know, that's what my life is about. And I hope other like-minded individuals will, will do the same thing. And I. I celebrate paramedic who engage in that in that mission vision. Uh, and that's uh, it's always really really good to hear that from the the physician leaders and partners that that we have in all of this. So I, I think back to the early like early Nancy Caroline EMT textbooks, and you know I remember reading flipping through them back in the '80s, even you know before I was anywhere near this profession, and um, you know seeing them at scout camp on a bookshelf or something, and you know they talked about the things that made for quality EMS systems and. One of the early lessons learned was engaged physician leadership. And through the, the early stumbling, fumbling, trying to figure out what it looked like, there were a lot of EMS systems that were set up really without physicians. You know, they were thought to be in a community emergency response thing and not necessarily medicine. And uh, I think they figured out fairly quickly they needed docs. But that was one of those things that they it was a bullet point in those early textbooks. You know, you need physicians, you need physician leadership. And and partnerships, and they need to be engaged. And too many EMS agencies, I think, lack that daily connection, that strong relationship. And when the MIH programs pop up, it's so, so critical that we have that, that close working partnership where the clinical expertise and the knowledge and that, uh, that kind of like that health systems leadership um, experience from the, from the docs comes into play. 
so that we can do the things that we do well, but feeling like it's supported and that the top cover is there. Yeah, so, absolutely. It's definitely been a lesson learned. Don't don't have an absentee medical director that's a signature on a piece of paper. You really find one that is as invested in this work as you are. Well, you know, it, it boils down to that simple equation of what value is. And it's value is, you know, quality over cost. And when you bring a physician's cognitive capacity to the forefront with the paramedic as a facilitator, and you reduce the cost of that interaction, maybe through telehealth or other mechanisms, then you have a high value proposition. One of the things uh, done as I did research on sort of developing a model, I studied what three individuals in 2018 tried to do because they, they thought it was a huge issue for our nation. I'm talking about, these are little known names that you probably don't know, a guy named Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos and, <laughs> and, and J.B. Diamond. Jamie Diamond is the CEO. Who? Jamie Diamond. Never heard of any of these folks. I know, I know. I mean, you know, but you know, they had this big idea that they were going to transform healthcare, and so they put together something called the Haven Project. And unfortunately, they it was too complex for them, and they they shut it down in in uh, three years later in 2021 January. But I had the the privilege of interacting with the uh, manager of that program. She lives in Boston and she's a Stewart Health ex executive. And then I worked in a Stewart Health hospital. So my CEO at Stewart Health connected me with her and I, I had a chance to kind of talk with her. And it's all population health. You know, it's, it's about improving the metrics in communities, you know, and, and that's what these these three unknown names, <laughs> you know, they were, they were trying to do, but it was just too complex for them. But I really believe that if we do it community by community, and if we work together, physicians, paramedics, and other ancillaries, the other med levels, you know, nurse practitioners and PAs, as long as they collaborate with physicians, nurses, home health agencies, and especially the public health people, you know, which they, you know, it's all siloed, you know, we got to bring it all together. There's a great publication by the American Academy of Family Physicians called The Practical Playbook. And in that, the whole emphasis is bringing down the silos between public health and primary care so that we're all kind of working toward the same end with population that health metrics. sitting on my nightstand right now, and it's, it's on a stack of three or four books, but I, I, I came across it probably six months ago, ordered a copy, and have been kind of working through it a bit at a time, and it's, it's phenomenal. I recommended it to all of my team really is one of the books I suggest they read just to kind of get some some insight into thinking about how do we build these better partnerships. So I, I love it that you just mentioned that, that, that book. Well, it's it's not, you don't even have to purchase it. It's on the internet free. I don't know what the website is, but if you, if you Google um, the practical playbook and it's the second edition, uh, the first edition came out in 2016 and this edition came out a year ago or so. But it's all about yep. breaking down the silos between public health and primary care. But I would go on to say also EMS and home health and you know all the other entities that we're, we all should be working toward the same thing, which is improving you know health in our communities. And uh, you know the data is there, the metrics are definable, and we just have to um, make sure the model intervention 
And I think MIH and community peer medicine is that model. And that's why in my bill, I promote primary care community health centers and rural health clinics as also agencies that can engage community paramedics for that purpose, along with EMS agencies, and that EMS agencies get reimbursed. Because right now, it's as you know, if you have a community paramedicine program with your with your agency, you know, it's just so, so hard to, you know, reimburse for the efforts unless you form contracts with hospitals that don't want readmissions and that sort of thing or ACOs. Especially. So one more hard question, I guess, before we kind of get there, it really, because we you hit the nail on the head. Everybody's asking question, how do we pay for all of this stuff? Yeah. And that, you know, I, I know I, I have my opinions about, you know, the way to do that, but how do we get away from the the existing fee-for-service structure, which makes this so hard, you know, do, are we just sending out community paramedics to do uh, scut work off a checklist or what's the right contract vehicle to the right revenue model to say, you know, whether, you know, ACOs and MCOs or how do we make sure that paramedicine, community paramedics, mobile integrated health programs are appropriately compensated for the value they deliver to the rest of the healthcare system to to primary care to to the the inpatient and acute care system like how do we what's the right vehicle how does that work without again just paying for do this paid for that which seems to be what everyone else in healthcare has realized we need to evolve away from that's a great question and it goes to um, the catholic church system has a, a saying it says no no margin no mission <laughs> so you got to find you know your mission and so with primary care, it's not a problem. For instance, I'm credentialed in my area in South Padre Island in South Texas. I'm credentialed with all the insurance companies and I'm part of an ACL. So when I sent my paramedics out with um, telehealth connection to me, we review the situation, for instance, you know, criteria for monoclonal infusion. I got paid for every one of those interactions. So there was no problem. And in Texas, you know, we were a delegatory state, trained my paramedics to do all sorts of great procedures, uh, suturing, INDs, splinting, you know, that, that type of thing. And as long as I have a good quality improvement program and field sessions and, you know, research certification and that type of thing, uh, it's good. But EMS agencies struggle. But my bill addresses that in the sense that you have to have some, I, I think legislation empowers an EMS agency to become like a provider of care. And this, this came directly from Mark Escott. I got to give him credit for the part of my bill that deals with that legislation that will require third-party payers, including CMS, to well, not necessarily CMS. CMS already wants us to do this, as illustrated by the ET3 program. You know, um, but legislation helps. Short of legislation, it's just negotiating with third-party payers who, you know, they want to save money also, but by improving quality. And it takes people like yourself, as you were mentioning, how you can negotiate with third-party payers. And on the most part, once they understand what you're doing, they're like, yes, we want to keep people out of the ER and out of the hospital. You know, we want to, we want people to be healthy. So I don't sure. uh, conceptually Proof you can do it is usually how that, that conversation goes next though. Great. That sounds wonderful. Prove that you can do it. <laughs> right. Well, the ET3 program is a great demonstration project that it works, you know, and, and that's ET3, why it's. It, there's so much opportunity there, but I think one of the big problems with the ET3 is that it, it created a selection bias really only entities of a, of a certain size that had a fully integrated communication center are able to truly capitalize on it. And that just doesn't represent the vast majority of EMS agencies around the country. 
that are doing that emergency response mission. So I, I have to wonder if we're going to get the lessons learned out of the EC3 pilots that we need. And, and you know, the, there's a bunch of, you know, one, of uh, one of your colleagues there in Texas, Matt Zavadsky, obviously a, an incredibly well-known sure. name um, in, in mobile integrated health and, and the work that they've sure. done up there yeah. is phenomenal. But again, they are, they are, I don't want to say unique, but there are very few entities out there that were positioned to truly capitalize on that pilot in the way that it was designed. You know, the small, the small local services or in parts of the country where, you know, EMS is delivered by a, uh, a third party contractor, by a private company, there's, there was, they, there wasn't, they weren't even eligible to participate. And I don't know that you can scale all of the lessons to all those different, you know, business models that are out there, I guess, for the way we deliver emergency services. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's an evolution. You know, we, we've taken the first step. I mean, we're not going to get to Mars, you know, just by, you know, blasting off from SpaceX and just powering there. We're going to, we're going to probably get to the moon first. <laughs> and, and then sure. you know, we do that, we do that by harnessing chaos theory, you know, and circling the earth a couple of times, getting momentum and then blasting off from there. You know, it's an evolutionary process. And I think we've taken the first step. And, you know, in my, in my paradigm, in my bill, I can envision uh, population health clinics, you know, becoming those ET3 centers because the population health clinics have a lot of paramedics. And, and then we open 24 hours and we, take, we open ourselves up to being ET3 light centers. Just like with the independent freestanding ERs, we didn't, because initially Medicare, CMS wouldn't accept, you know, working with us, but we still in our rules and regulations put EMTALA-like language. So we still very much treat every patient just like a hospital, you know, somebody working in a hospital ER, we still EMTALA-like, you know, do a medical screening exam and determine if there's an emergency medical condition, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the ET3 program is sort of like maybe getting to the moon or even having a, a way station between the earth and the moon, you know, and then eventually we'll get to the moon and eventually we'll get to Mars, you know, so it's just, we just got to keep pushing forward, iterating the, the program and with um, insurance companies, third-party payers, because they, I mean, they want what the ET3 program does, which is get the person to the right place, the right provider at the right time, the, the acuity needs to match the provider. Sure, you know, and that's that, the triple aim. So, exactly. So, I, I even say the quadruple aim, which is includes health health equity and, and staff satisfaction, you know, in addition to the other three things in the triple aim. So that's sort of, um, I've learned that from the community health center, national executive leader there. He's like, say quadruple aim out there. You know, we want a health equity and, and staff satisfaction because, you know, it's the workers. It matters. That, yeah, it matters a lot. You know, it matters. So, quadruple. So last aim. quick question: Talking about the staff and the clinical stuff, and, and you know, Texas is in a um, again an interesting position. You know, with some you had some foresight there in terms of the legislation or regulations with the licensed paramedics versus the non-degreed paramedics. And you know, my understanding is, as things stand today, there's largely no distinction in practice uh, in the field. Um, but is that part of your bill, or is that something that that uh, was part of the conversation as you started looking at, you know, how do we make sure clinicians, the right clinicians, are credentialed appropriately and then compensated appropriately for the work that they do? Because that's a bigger conversation nationally. Where are we at as far as you know formal education requirements and those sort of things? And again, Texas has has that vehicle, you know, with the licensed paramedic existing. 
Right, right. And that's, you know, I started getting out of my field of expertise. I think Mark, Mark Escott would be the, great, the best person to comment on that. I know I put that in my bill because he recommended it, and I think it's a great idea. I see, you know, paramedics as the next big mid-level position, you know, but I, in my paradigm, I always want the physician involved with the patient care with the facilitator and, you know, the paramedic and using whatever resources, IT, artificial intelligence, ultrasound, you know, all the remote physiologic monitoring, everything, all the technology should augment at the end of the day, what we do with population health metrics. But again, you know, for me, the highest value is where, where you have the physician cognitively making discernments on patient care with the paramedic facilitating that. As you get into the paramedic working independently without the physician, I mean, of course, you can do that with protocols for certain things, like for instance, diet and exercise protocols. When you start getting into complex medical decision-making, I think really to keep the quality up, you always have to have the physician involved. And I'm, I'm somewhat opposed politically to the independence of nurse practitioners and physician assistants as they're trying to push forward, you know, legislation. Um, I think that doesn't give the patient the, the highest quality care they can get with the appropriate specialist, be it a family physician, a EMS medical director, or pediatrician, a radiologist, whatever. You know, there's years and years of training, which gives them a cognitive capacity to make discernment on presentations you know, with uh, the history and physical and ancillaries. So anyway, that's, yeah. that's, that's sort of my, I guess if you want to call it a bias, you know, but that's the way I feel now. As a forensic expert, I always put that line, I, I reserve the right to change my opinion. <laughs> if, if there's other evidence that comes up, you know, I put that line in at the end because some, some paramedics like yourself, I mean, can certainly work autonomously. I mean, I mean, after I heard your, your story and your experience. I mean, I'm like, let me put myself in your care. <laughs> you know, you know. I, I think but, the point is though, is that it's, an, it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary to extend that. Like we have physicians and you know, I know for like my team, what we figured out is we actually need more relationships with more types of physicians. And we, we largely don't yes. work with the emergency folks. We, we almost entirely work with primary care and a bunch of the specialists and subspecialists because those are the those are the folks who are identifying the issues. They're the ones who are realizing that I have a patient who's struggling with a bunch of different things. And, you know, we're not there to treat the patient. We're not there to do the, the clinical care. What we're often finding is our ideal position has been, hey, we hear we hear about all these these barriers to care and we can help you navigate that so you can get the best care possible from the right team possible. And that's that's been the collaborative relationship for us that's made the biggest difference. Is not us trying to go out and and, you know, play PA light or do something of the, it's more to be, how do we get all of the different players in the system working together more effectively to deliver better outcomes? Completely agree with that. And, and with the, with the technology, the way it is with uh, telehealth, you know, interconnectivity, you know, um, we're, we're, we're very capable of being able to do that type of thing now. And, and, and we can evolve from there and, and make it better. I mean, I can, see Google glasses and that kind of technology on every paramedic, you know, so that everything's being recorded and transmitted, you know, real time. And the physician is right there with you, whatever specialty the person might be having a stroke. You have a neurologist helping you with the NIH score, you know, where that patient should be, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that really sounds like the key is collaborative partnerships. And to me that, 
gets us back to the heart of this whole podcast. And that's the operative word in mobile integrated health is integrated. I love it. Yeah. I've shared my philosophy a little bit and I got to, you know, give a shout out to Ken Wilber and integral theory. And it's all about differentiating and integrating. And that's why I like your podcast because it's, it's about integrating all the different part, you know, of a system for the best outcome. That's what we're all here to do. Well, so thank you so much for your time today, doc. That's a, again, a lot of little bits of insight for folks to think about because we're all trying to figure out the same solutions. We're all trying to you know, navigate a lot of the same problems and figure out how do we deliver the best care to the most people with the resources that we have in a way that keeps all the clinicians professionally satisfied, paid appropriately. Like this is the big picture. Yes, sir. Cool. Yes, sir. Well, thanks My again. Pleasure. My pleasure.